couple times a month, I get the opportunity to meet with different people or work at Panera here in town for business. And this couple always steals my favorite table. It's the table when you walk in, it's on the left-hand side, it's kind of in a corner by itself, and it, I like the fact that it's right up front, and you can, you can position yourself in such a way that you can watch the people who are in line, but you can also kind of watch the parking lot and see who's coming in and who's going, because it's kind of fun to people watch. And so that's my favorite table, and a couple times a month I have the opportunity to, walk to, to, to work from Panera, and that's where I see this couple. Now, if I happen to be ahead of them going into Panera, I will quickly, I won't go in line. I will go to the table and put my coat and my computer at the table so I can steal it from them because I know exactly where they're going. And if I'm behind them when they come in, I'm hoping that they go in line so that I can steal the table from them that way. Or I try and make it look like I'm trying to hold the door open for them, but really I'm keeping it closed long enough so that I can get in a position to get my table from them. It's my favorite table. Just so happens to be their favorite table too. But more often than not, what I find is that when I'm going to walk into Panera, I look up to see if my table is available, and it's not, because they're sitting there. And they're, and they're, and they're old. You know, they've been married, I believe, well beyond 50 years or so. And they're adorable. And it's okay that they steal my table. I, I don't begrudge them too much because honestly, it's kind of fun just to watch them because there's something that I want to do. Sometimes they talk and they sit across from each other. A lot of times they don't. Sometimes you'll see one of them kind of gesture with their head to something that they find interesting or amusing, either outside or inside and the other one's attention will be focused by this gentle nonverbal communication they clean up after each other when they're done eating and she'll take his napkin and straw wrapper and dispose of it and he'll be sure while she's doing that that he's ready to get the door for her on the way out and it's something that i think is amazing and you know trish and i are well on our way to being that couple i hope um we're about halfway there, I guess, if you think about it. But the thing that's beautiful about them is not their physical beauty. That flower has faded. It's how they love each other. And so I'm kind of okay if they take my table because it's, it's fun getting to position myself so that I can observe them and learn and set that as a goal for myself, that I want to be that guy that's still very truly in love with my wife. And it doesn't matter what we look like or how we feel. And sometimes we can talk and sometimes we don't have to, but we love each other. And that's, I, I think we all feel that way. And, and I feel privileged that I've never gotten to speak to this couple, but it's kind of cool getting to see them from time to time. Now, if I were to sit down and actually talk with them, it's, it's the kind of conversation, and, and you would feel this way too, where you know that just five minutes of talking with this couple would probably teach me things about love and marriage that I've never picked up in a DVD curriculum or in a book or in a webcast. They, they have the kind of knowledge that has been tested by time. It, that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. It's been applied in an actual relationship for a long period of time. And, and, and five minutes with them would be relational gold. We would all benefit. Uh, we would all learn things that we should stay away from and, and be motivated to do things that 
are important to having that kind of a relationship. And again, you've seen these kinds of couples out and about in the community, and, and you know who I'm talking about or the kinds of couples that I'm talking about. But if we were actually able to sit down and, and, and listen to them tell their story, I think we would all know that the, it hasn't always been champagne and roses. They would probably tell some stories about the time where their, spar- their spouse, their partner, was the one that they loved, but not necessarily the one that they liked. They would tell stories about the time that their spouse or their partner was the one that they knew, but wasn't necessarily the one that they understood. Or they would tell stories about the time where their spouse or their partner was the one that they had, but maybe not always the one that they wanted. We would probably hear those stories, that marriages that end the way this marriage looks to end didn't start that way. It's not possible for a relationship to start that way. And we know that those stories of when they did not agree are part of what makes, but they resolved it somehow because they still have a lunch date regularly, too regularly for my taste personally, at Panera. And so it's a beautiful narrative, and it's a narrative worth studying. And so we're going to begin a study this week. It's going to last for the next few weeks, and it's called Problem Child. Because as God loves the church, he gave us that kind of a narrative in Scripture. The narrative that begins where you're just minding your own business. It's like falling in love. The day that you fell in love, you probably weren't looking to fall in love. You were just going about your way. And so this biblical narrative begins that way. A particular guy was just going about his day. And then he had interest in something that he had heard in the community about a teacher named Jesus. And his brother actually introduced him. And John the Baptist had a few things to do with it too. And so just minding his own business turned into interest, which turned into inquisitive following. A committed following, but this committed process always involved questions. And then it turned into an aspect of leadership where he became part of a trusted small group of friends. And then it led to betrayal, and it led to disappointment with his, with his Savior and with himself. And then it led to restoration and repentance in power like we've never seen anywhere else except in the pages of Scripture. This couple that I see out and about in the community, their story probably sounds like that. Out and about, minding their business, saw each other, interested, committed to at least ask a few intelligent questions, became committed to each other, became committed to each other, and then ran into difficulties, whatever those were, worked them through, and now they're in a place that you don't even have to talk to them, and they emulate power and peace in the kind of marriage that we would all want. We find this narrative in the Gospels, and it's the story of Peter. You see, we don't know much about Andrew. We don't know much about James and John. We don't know hardly anything about Bartholomew or Jude or Judas or Thomas, except that he, you know, had a couple questions of his own. We don't know much about those guys at all. But about Peter, we have an awful lot of information. And his narrative is so inspiring because here's the big idea of the sermon series entitled Problem Child is that Peter's problems with Jesus mark the pathway that links the ministry of Jesus with the mission of the church. Because I don't care if, if you're a committed Christ follower or if you've just picked up the Bible a little bit just to see what all the hubbub is about. 
but there is a tension between what Jesus does in the New Testament and what you see in the church today. And there's this gap between we have this teacher, healer, guy, his ministry, and then we see this mission that's given to a group of people that follow him, but they don't seem to line up. And there seems to be some disparity between the ministry of Jesus Christ and the mission of the church. And you don't have to be a Christ follower to see it. Anyone who knows anything about the Bible who has read even one chapter about Jesus understands that there is some tension between what he did during his time here on earth and what the church is doing now. And nobody illustrates this narrative and resolves this tension better than the Apostle Peter. And I've entitled this sermon series, Problem Child, not so much because Peter was a problem child for Jesus, but because Peter had problems. <laughs> Peter specifically had problems with Jesus. There were times that he felt like Jesus was the Savior that he had, but he wasn't the Savior that he wanted. There were times that Jesus knew that this was the Savior that he loved, but it wasn't the Savior that he liked. And we know this because there are a number of times throughout the gospel accounts of the life and times of Jesus Christ where Peter is asking question after question. They're yelling at each other. It involves some very dramatic scenes from the New Testament. We're going to take our time over the next few weeks and resolve these questions because Peter is a problem child in that he is a child with problems towards Jesus. There's things about Jesus that he doesn't understand. There's things about Jesus that he doesn't like. Jesus isn't always doing the things Peter wants him to do in the way that he wants them done, where he feels they should be done. And so Peter isn't so much a problem child from Jesus's perspective. Peter is a problem child in that he's a child with problems with Jesus. And those problems mark the pathway of discipleship that link Jesus's ministry and the mission of the church. And so because God loves the church and he loves you, he has placed a narrative in his word that we can not only relate to, but also look forward to. Peter's narrative begins with the fact that his name is Simon Barjona. He wasn't always named Peter. Simon Barjona literally means Simon, son of John. That's his name, Simon Barjona. We know from the biblical account that Simon Barjona, well, he spoke with an accent. That was noticeable to those that he interacted with. If you remember the scene uh, before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ where he's betraying Jesus, they pick him out as a Galilean because he sounds like one. My life was radically changed in third grade when I got a word wrong on a spelling test because I never got words wrong on a spelling test. And the word was idear, I-D-E-A-R. Everybody knows how to spell that word. But Mr. Whirling gave me a 90%. Because of those 10 words, I spelled idea wrong. I spelled it perfectly correct. He said, Josh, go get a dictionary. And I looked it up in the dictionary, and there was no R. This radically changed my life. Because now I'm thinking, what other words do I say that I add an R to? And then I fall in love with and start dating a woman who was raised in the Midwest, and she was only too happy to tell me. All the words that I was mispronouncing down, Stella, in my dressage law. Good idea. Peter is one of those guys. We can relate to that. Now, maybe you realize that if you're from southeastern Connecticut, you have that same accent, or maybe you haven't. But Peter had an accent. Simon, son of John, 
He talked a little funny, at least when he left his environment. Peter was a family guy with a family business. Peter was in business with his brother Andrew. Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist. And it was Andrew who said, hey, Peter, Simon, bro, I, I, we met someone and he might be the Messiah. Would you come and meet him with me? And so he did. And Andrew was not only his brother, but also his business partner. Now, those two brothers, the, the sons of Jonah, were also business partners with two other brothers named James and John. And James and John were the bar Zebedee, James and John, son of Zebedee. So Zebedee's boys and Jonah's boys were in business together at the northern edge of Lake of Galilee. And so he was a family guy. He had a family business. He was in partnership with some other family guys. We know that Peter had a wife. We know that Peter had a mother-in-law. We know that Peter traveled with his wife once he became the apostle Peter and was sharing the gospel after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All things we can relate to. All things we can relate to. Many of us have had the, the time where, you know, we're a little low on work or we need a little extra work, and who do we reach out to? We either reached out to a, a brother or a sister or a family member who had a business going, or we reached out to some friends of ours who had a business going because we need a little something-something to keep, keep the money coming in. We can relate with this guy from the northern edge of Galilee the Lake of Galilee, who spoke with an accent, who had a family business, and he had a wife that he liked to travel with. He, of course, had a nickname. The first time that he met Jesus, he met Jesus over a series of three or four different occasions that we have records of in the New Testament. And then, of course, Jesus asked him to follow him. But it was somewhere in these first two or three times that he met Simon Barjona that he said, your name is Cephas, which is an Aramaic word meaning it's a rock. And it's translated into the Greek as Peter. And so right from the get-go, Jesus gives him this name. It's a nickname. And his nickname was Rocky. And Rocky was in business with his brother Andrew. And Jesus gave James and John, his business partners, nicknames as well. He called them the Sons of Thunder. Because they tried to destroy a town. They wanted to call God's wrath down on the town. And Jesus was like, whoa, back it up, Sons of Thunder. And the inner three, right? The inner three, Peter, James, and John. Literally, it's Rocky and the Sons of Thunder. That's Jesus' crew. And he gave him that name right from the get-go. I'm just going to give you this nickname, and we're going to explore the significance of that name in the weeks to come. But it's Rocky and the Sons of Thunder. Peter, as, as you know from the New Testament, he desired to do the right thing a lot of times, but man, he got it wrong. He really fouled it up. He, uh, he's known for being impetuous. He's known for just kind of being emotional. He's known for kind of overstating some things. He's known for completely missing the point of what Jesus is talking about. And we're so grateful for it because it's the pathway of discipleship. It's, it points the pathway of discipleship for us because Peter asked the same kinds of questions that you and I want to ask Jesus ourselves. And so we're going to have a fun time exploring those in the New Testament as well. But after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see something that you couldn't see if you just knew Peter as a fisherman from a small town in northern Galilee. The guy with an accent. The guy with the family business. The guy with the nickname. The guy with the wife. The guy in partner with the Sons of Thunder. And that is, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to Acts chapter 5, Peter becomes a preacher and a church planter with so much power and authority 
that you'll read about this in Acts chapter 5. After a series of healings and then judgments that took place in the local church, Acts chapter 5 records that the believers of Jesus were in the habit of meeting in Solomon's portico, which is a porch, which was off of the temple, which had not been destroyed at that time. And the text says that the people greatly admired Peter and the other Christians, truly respected them, and would have nothing to do with them because they were afraid of them. Peter moved with such authority. Peter moved with such power. Peter moved with such conviction. And the kinds of things that God was doing through Peter were so powerful that people were truly respectful of it and were afraid to approach him because he had such authority and such conviction and such power, yet no formal training. It was like they weren't sure how it was going to go. They didn't feel entirely safe in his presence. God was moving so powerfully through him. In fact, they say they were even afraid to bring sick people to him to be healed because people were being healed in droves by New Testament pastors and leaders that they were so afraid of the authority and the power that was working through Peter at the time that they would line sick people up on the side of the road in the hopes that while Peter was walking to or from one of his times of prayer at Solomon's portico, that his shadow would fall on them. Something happened to this guy. This is the guy with the accent. This is the guy with the wife. This is the guy with the business partners. This is the guy who is impetuous. This is the guy who gets it wrong. This is the guy who actually yells at Jesus. The guy who actually takes Jesus aside and says, let me explain you. That didn't go well for him. We're going to take a look at that. But then after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's the kind of guy that you're so afraid to get close to, but you're so interested. And, and, and he's got so much power that you just hang out where he's going to walk by in hopes that his shadow, because his shadow has so much potential power that you might learn something about God just by being that close to him. That's Peter. He's the guy who writes this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Now, please understand, last week we took a look at the text in John chapter 20, that on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, before the sun came up, two men ran to the garden tomb because they'd heard a disturbing report from Mary Magdalene, which was that the Lord was not there. And so two boys, James and John, James, the son of Jonah, I'm sorry, Peter, it was Peter and John, Peter, the son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah, and John, the son of Zebedee, the business partners, right? Two of the inner three. They run to the garden tomb, and John holds up. But Peter, being Peter, dives into the tomb, looks around, and the scripture says he has no idea what's happening right now. He does not understand why the tomb was empty. The scripture records that John went into the tomb, looked around, and believed. And then he says... The reason that there is this tension and, 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 and confusion in the garden is that they did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus was supposed to rise from the dead. They were operating in the dark. They didn't understand the mission of Jesus until it happened to them. John kind of clued in on Easter morning. Peter, in his impetuosity, still does not know what Jesus is all about. And it's the same guy that writes this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, 
He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. How does a fisherman start talking about what is and is not in heaven? How does a fisherman know what is uncorruptible and incorruptible and perishable and not perishable and what will find you after your own personal day of reckoning with the Lord? How does this guy know this stuff? This is, this is Peter, a radical change. You are being protected by God's power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you have had to struggle in various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, it's more valuable than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love verse 8. You love him, though you have not seen him. If that doesn't describe modern-day discipleship, then I don't know what does. That's the definition of a modern-day disciple. We love him, but we haven't seen him. There's so much power and tension in that short sentence, and Peter gets it. He understands this. You love him, though you have not seen him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This guy drops it like it's hot. Where did this come from? We could sit around all day and order Subway and try and write one sentence that sounds as awesome as that, and we wouldn't come up with one. Peter did through the power of the Holy Spirit that was working through him. That's a fascinating story. Do you see how Peter and Jesus have become the old couple at Cana? He perfectly reflects his Savior's heart. At one time, it was the Savior that he loved, but it was not the Savior that he liked. It was the Savior that he knew, but it was not the Savior that he understood. It was the Savior that he had, but it was not the Savior that he wanted. And yet, working through his problems with Jesus, because Peter is a problem child, he has problems with Jesus. He comes to this place where he's talking about with complete assurance matters of eternal salvation and faith. So we're going to explore that. It's such a privilege to see not only his struggles with Jesus, but also the resolution as we take a look at what he's written in his epistles. And here's something that we're going to find true about Peter and his narrative with Jesus is that his life was not changed in one magical moment, but rather a series of moments. It was not the work of one redefining moment, but a series of moments, rather, which redefined him as he lived and he worked with Jesus. And, of course, there was a crisis around the crucifixion and the death of Jesus and the restoration. Some moments were more important than others. There's no doubt about it. But like that old couple at Canera, that relationship was not born in a day. That relationship is the sum of 50 or 60 years of journeying with each other. Peter's relationship, as reflected in his epistles, 1st and 2nd Peter, reflect 50 or 60 years of serving and loving and following Jesus, his Messiah. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to jump into the problems that Peter had with Jesus and see the, the sparks fly and how they were resolved. And it's going to be like walking on a path defined by problem after problem after problem that leads to power. Because the pathway of discipleship is marked by Peter's problems 
that resolved the tension between the ministry of Jesus Christ, which Peter did not understand, even on Easter morning, and the mission of the church, which by golly he certainly got by First Peter. And so it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to walking through this sermon series with you. And by way of conclusion this morning, I guess let's begin the narrative where the narrative begins, which is with a name change. That's where Peter's story begins. He didn't spend a year or two with Jesus and then get his name changed. No, it was one of the first times he met Jesus that Jesus said, Simon Barjona, I call you Cephas, which is translated in the Greek as Peter. Rocky, would you join the Sons of Thunder and be my guide? I know we don't know each other very well, but I think we know enough to know that I want you to follow me. And we're going to see in the text that Jesus actually says, you've been fishing for fish for a long time. That's cool. Come work with me and we're going to fish for men. Commit yourself to me. I'm renaming you Peter, a rock. And so this morning, maybe you've never made a decision of faith. You've never followed Jesus Christ. Don't miss what Peter would have you say from his epistle. Be confident of something that you can have no confidence in which whatsoever, which is your eternal salvation, your destination forever. Have 100% confidence in it. Feel about your salvation as gold feels about fire. It's hard and it's hot, but it refines and it purifies. And the closer you get to your eternal destination, the more confidence that you have about where you're going and who you're going to be with. That's the, the first point of this morning, the, the first application, is that if your name has not been changed by Jesus Christ, if you've not been redefined by faith in Jesus Christ, whom you love, though you have never met. You see, for a disciple, that's normal. You love him, but you've never seen him. If you feel that way towards Jesus, you're not crazy. It actually means the Lord is talking to you, because that's how it feels. How can I make a commitment to someone that I've never met, that I've never laid my eyes on? It's happening because the Lord is quickening your heart and your spirit to accept his son as your savior. He's looking to redefine you and give you a new name. Now, for some of us, we've been known as Christ followers for some time. And I want to encourage you this morning that if you look back on your journey and you feel that it's been marked by problem, by difficulty, by challenge, by problem, how do you think Peter looks back on his time with Jesus? Well, there was the time that I doubted him. There was the time that I thought he doubted me, but he really didn't. There was the time that I took him aside and yelled at him, and then he called me the son of the devil. Then there was the time that I cursed about him and then betrayed him. His time with Jesus was also marked by problem after difficulty, after struggle, after challenge. He was a problem child. And if that's you this morning, I've been redefined. I've been renamed. I've been repurposed by my Savior. The Lord has quickened my heart, and I've accepted Jesus by faith but I look back over my life and it doesn't feel powerful. Please be encouraged this morning that it never does. That it kind of more looks like a journey of difficulty. But we work through these difficulties because we have never seen him, yet we love him. That's what disciples do. So I hope that's been encouragement to you this morning. I look forward to jumping into the scripture and watching Peter fight with Jesus. That's what we're going to do because he's a problem child. And we're going to see how the Lord resolves each of Peter's problems and inspires a man to write these beautiful words, which continues to motivate and inspire us today. A man whom the power of God 
flowed through so powerfully that just his shadow was thought to bring healing. A man so powerful that he can actually link the ministry of Jesus Christ with our mission today. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to spend a few moments in your word. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never accepted your son Jesus Christ by faith, that they would get a new name this morning. Father, we turn from the things that we know that are wrong, that disappoint you and ourselves, just like Peter did. And we accept your son by faith and we ask for a new name and a new purpose. We too want to be on mission for your church. Father, I pray for those of us who are saints, who are called by your name, that need a word of encouragement, that we would be encouraged by Peter's story, that it was marked by questions and challenges that you resolved through the power of your Holy Spirit and faith in your son. We ask for that process over the next few weeks as well. Father, thank you for this time to worship you. Thank you for this time to learn from you. And I pray, Father, that you would be pleased with your people as we go about our business this week. We ask these things 